All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. We are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And this is a follow-up to the previous episode that we did. We're starting a series on how to read the Bible. And even though part two is coming immediately after part one, that's not always going to be the case. We're not going to do this like we did our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, where we just did a series all in a row, all together. We're going to break it up a little bit. These first two are going to go back to back, but uh, future episodes will come later. We'll have other episodes we do in between them. It will still be a great series, and we hope that you guys get something out of it. Uh, In our previous episode, we talked about the regulated principle of worship. As we're talking about how to read the Bible, the approach that so many people take, and it's the approach that Kevin took, it's the approach that I took, and countless millions of good, God-fearing Christians have taken, is the position that is rooted within what's called the regulative principle. And that regulative principle declares that God has regulated the way he is to be worshipped. There is a particular methodology in which he demands to be worshipped. We talked about that in the previous episode. Um, so go and re- go and listen to that. Go and read those show notes. Listen to that episode. Um, it'll help kind of clue you in with where we're coming from with this episode. But where that ideology largely stems from is a position of wanting to be pleasing unto God. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be pleasing unto God. We all want to be pleasing unto God. And the people that live their Christian lives within the realm of that regulative principle do so in a manner that stems from sincerity. They have a desire to follow after God. But whenever it really comes down to it, and I'll speak for myself, and I think that I can say that this is true for you as well, Kevin, and it's been true for many other people, that it's really a position that is relegated in fear or that rather emanates from a place of fear. We're afraid of displeasing God. We're afraid of drawing his wrath in his ire. And so in order to remain within good standing within the eyes of God, We search the scriptures to find the things that God demands of us, and then we adhere to those things and follow those things as closely as we possibly can so that we don't bring his wrath down upon ourselves. For sure. That's definitely the belief I had for many, many, many years. And if I'm just going to be completely transparent, it's something I've even struggled with over the past couple of years, a few years, just trying to figure out how exactly everything operates and how I need to, how I need to read the Bible, how I need to understand God, how I need to live my life, uh, how, how I deal with questions that I can't answer, how I deal with thoughts uh, or feelings of uncertainty and those types of things all play just a big factor in, in, in how are we going to read the scriptures and not just read the scriptures, but what are we going to do with them? And how does everything kind of pan out, especially with who God is and how the people around me view who God is. And I I found that whoever you're around, your community, and even your own family can have a a huge impact on if you view God as a loving God or a scary God. If you read the Bible through faith and love, or if you read it through fear and condemnation. And this really, I don't know if it was just uh, a eureka moment for me, but when we had David Artman on the program to talk about universalism, which I'm still not a Christian universalist as of right now, as with any topic, I reserve the right to be wrong. And I certainly hope it's true, uh, but I do believe in annihilationism or uh, conditionalism, meaning that only those who will trust in Christ will end up having eternal life. But I, even when I started changing to that view, and having discussions with people, people say, well, if you believe that people aren't actually going to be tortured forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and, and hell, then what's the point of following God to begin with? Or especially with Christian universalism, well, if people are going to ultimately be saved or at least have an opportunity to be saved, everybody will have at least one final opportunity to be saved. Then what's the point of trying to teach people Jesus right now? And that hearing that response just did something inside of me because I I started realizing a lot of people follow God and read the Bible 
not because they love God, but because they are absolutely terrified of the alternative. It's it's more of the lesser of two evils almost. Well, I would rather follow God and do what he says than have to be tortured forever and ever. Well, it brings and, to mind that that title of that famous sermon from the theologian from years ago, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yeah. Yeah, it's and and you're exactly right. It's this that idea of how do we read the scripture through through fear? Do we read it through faith? And I'll tell you the common answer. Well, we're supposed to read it through both. And uh, I'm excited about this episode to explain why I don't believe that's the case, and to talk about some of these fear passages and the passages that talk about fearing God and exactly unpacking what that means within context in the greater narrative arc. So I'm excited about really jumping right into this. Yeah. Well, and to kick it off, I'd like to just retread a little bit of the ground that we covered in the last episode. And when I mean, when I say a little bit, I mean a little bit. One of the things that either you said it or I said it, one of us said it, I don't remember who, is that that regulative principle tends to lend itself to division. We talked about that in the episodes we did on Christian unity and how the way we read the Bible can lead us either towards greater unity with our fellow laborers in Christ or it can lead to division. And largely those groups that operate within that regulative principle paradigm, it leads to division. And the reason why it leads to division is because whenever you read the Bible, Kevin, you're going to read the Bible and you're going to read things in Scripture. And if you're reading it through the lens of that regulative principle, there are going to be things that come out of the Scriptures that you see. And it's like, wow, that's really important. I need to do that. And I need to observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of every week. And so you're going to start observing the Lord's Supper on the first day of every week. You're going to do that in your faith community. You guys are going to have a time separated in your service in which um, someone gets up and they read some passages. They bring to mind Jesus and his sacrifice. And then, you know, maybe the lights are dimmed and the... uh, Thanks is offered for the loaf that represents his body, and then we all partake of it, and then thanks is offered for the fruit of the vine, and then, you know, that's partaken of by everybody, and then the the service and that observation is concluded. And whenever you do that, everyone has their own um, piece of unleavened bread. Everyone has their own cup of maybe wine or unfermented grape juice or whatever else. There's some discussion on which way it should be with that, too, and everything else, yada, yada. Well, then I read that, and in my previous tradition, being in the One Cup group, I read that, and I look at those passages, and I see a lot of the same things, but we need to, whenever we observe that, one person gets up, they offer thanks for the loaf. Well, there's just one big loaf, a common loaf that everyone partakes of. And then whenever we partake of the fruit of the vine, there's one cup that everybody partakes of. And so even in that, we're looking at the same ritual and we're ascribing similar, or I would even say the same significance to the emblems within that ritual, but there's a difference in how that's being observed. And instead of recognizing the, and and allowing one person to do it one way, one person to do another way, we then dig our heels in and we begin to say, no, 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 you don't need to do it that way. You need to do it my way. Or you might say, well, you can do it your way, but I'm doing it my way and that's okay. And then I would look at you and say, well, hold on. We both agree that there's nothing wrong at all. There's no question that using one cup in the communion that we all partake of is a fine practice to utilize, that it's scriptural. But there's some question as to whether or not using individual communion cups is scriptural. So we should take the safe path. And that's really the point that I'm wanting to get to is this idea of the safe path. Whenever we approach the scriptures out of fear and we're so worried about extrapolating from scripture what God's will is for our lives and what God demands his people do, well, then there are going to be different conclusions we come to. And then those different conclusions lead to division. And then oftentimes one of the arguments that's made and one of the points that's made within that division is well, the way you're doing X, Y, or Z might be questionable, but we agree that this way is safe, so let's just do it the safe way. And I can think of a dozen different examples of this. I mean, there are Christian groups that believe it's a sin for a woman to wear pants. And we might say, you know, we all agree that it's perfectly acceptable for a Christian woman to wear dresses and skirts, but it's questionable as to whether or not she should wear pants. Don't you think you should do things the safe way? And you Christian sisters should just... You know, let's do it the safe way. And 
you know, abandon, take those pants out of your closet and throw them out. There are other Christian groups that say that, you know, it's a sin for a Christian woman to cut her hair. We know that it's perfectly acceptable for her to let the hair grow. But if she cuts it, you know, that could be questioned. Let's take the safe path here. Well, that we was the know. same argument I used on mechanical instruments in my debate in 2012. Yeah. I said, look, yeah. everyone here agrees that singing with our voices to God is okay. But the disagreement is, can you add an instrumental, uh, an instrument of music? And I'm saying no. And even if you believe you can, there's enough doubt that I think that has been created tonight to to conclude that we won't. We just don't want to take that chance. We w- we would rather be safe than sorry. We want to take the safe road. And so it's a lot better to just put away our, the instrumental music and everyone sing because we can all agree that singing is something that's okay. Why chance it? And yeah, you're right. You can do that with absolutely any doctrine at all. We talked about foot washing in the last episode. And if you study what some have written on that, who believe that it's still a practice that needs to be occurring today in churches, you could get to the point of thinking, well, I know it's not wrong if I do wash the feet of others. I mean, I know that's not wrong. And so just in case that is a command that Jesus did really give for us to always follow a timeless and eternal command that I guess it would be better for me to go ahead and do it than 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 to not do it at all. So maybe I should do it. I've never told you this, I don't think, Lee, but I had that debate with Johnny in 2009. And there were a few nights after that debate, I got to thinking, well, Maybe it would just be safer just to go ahead and take from one cup the Lord's Supper. I, you know, it, I wasn't convinced that I had to, but I was at least convinced enough that if there's a little chance, if there's a possibility, and I've even said that before on issues. What if there's just 1% chance? Do you willing to take that chance and go to hell? Are you willing to take that chance? There's 1%? I mean, half a percent? Why chance it at all? Just go ahead and do the practice we know's right, and don't chance it. Yeah, and what that ends up doing, or what that ends up, uh, blah, 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 I got all tongue-tied. I'll edit that out in post. What that ends up coming from, I did it again. What that philosophy emanates from, that idea of taking the safe path, it emanates from a place of fear. We're so afraid that we haven't, properly deciphered the code in scripture to know exactly what it is that God wants us to do, that if we deviate from that, well, there's a chance we could be lost. And it goes back to what we talked about before about what kind of God we serve. And so the idea is, is do we operate from a place of faith or do we operate from a place of fear? And this idea of taking the safe path is one of those things that so many people that operate from a place of fear come back to. And a discussion that I had with an individual that had some serious misgivings about some of the topics that we have discussed in this podcast, that was one of the arguments that they used was this idea, well, wouldn't it be better to take the safe path? We know that it's safe if we do this, this, and this, and if we avoid X, Y, and Z, and whatever else, then why don't we just take the safe path? And it doesn't that doesn't seem to be what we see enumerated in Scripture, that well, doesn't seem to be a scriptural attitude if we get down into that, and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. Well, I think first of all, the question has to be, what is the safe path? Who determines what the safe path is? And I've brought this up before to people. When you look at Matthew 25, 14 through 30, that's the parable of the talents. There was the one who went and he hid his talent because he was too afraid. He didn't want to, he didn't want to accidentally spend it wrong. He didn't need or in a wrong way, or he didn't want to waste it. And so he's like, well, I just, the best thing to do is I'll just, I'll just hide it. I won't do anything with it. I'll just do nothing with it because then I'm taking the safe route. And what did Jesus say? What is the, what is the point of the parable? Taking the safe route's not safe. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say that it's interesting to me because for whatever reason, when people say the safe route, I don't even have a problem per se with people saying the safe route. The question is, what is the safe route? And how did you arrive at the conclusion that doing nothing is actually the safe route? Because every time in scripture, we see that doing nothing 
is actually never considered the safe route. I mean, even when Peter, I love, I love Peter because he kind of helps me to, to know that I'm not the only one that just rushes into things and oftentimes does just a lot of stupid stuff and then immediately regrets it. And Peter just always does all these crazy things or he's just willing to go ahead and go out and do what it takes. And then sometimes he'll get rebuked or sometimes he'll be like, no, you didn't do it right or you should have done this differently. But he always had this relationship with Christ and it was understood that Peter was going to be the first one or he was he was willing to just, you know, I'll walk on the water. I'll do whatever it takes. And, you know, he was always rewarded because he was willing to actually do something. And the idea of the safe route being the safe route, typically when people say that, or I'd rather be safe than sorry, what they're really saying is I want to take a path that is the least or excuse me, the most restrictive and it it polarizes me. So I would rather not do this and not do this or not do this, or I would rather in, in the sense of not necessarily being restrictive, but on some of these other issues like the cup. Well, I'd rather just take the one cup just in case, or I'd rather do this just in case. And you end up not doing a lot of things that you otherwise would do out of fear because fear is very polarizing. But then you end up maybe doing some stuff that you wouldn't otherwise do or even think you should be doing, but you're doing it just in case. And you have to ask yourself, why do you think that that is the safe route to begin with? And the, the answer is, well, I don't accidentally want to do something wrong. But what they fail to realize is that in doing nothing, they're still making a decision. And with the parable of the talents, we see that when you do nothing, that's not the safe route either. Well, and I think, though, that one thing that someone could come back, because I I, sometimes whenever we do these podcasts, I kind of go back into oldly modes of thinking just to kind of get an idea. Well, what what would I have said five years ago to what you just said? Yeah. And and my response would be is, is, well, whenever I'm saying we need to use the one cup or we need to avoid instruments or or anything else that, you know, women need to, you know, take all their pants and throw them in a big old barrel and burn them because that's not the safe path. You know, whenever I say something like that, that's not doing nothing. That's making a choice that I am going to actively engage in this. So whenever you say do nothing, that that doesn't really equate to what's going True. on here. But True. but yeah. here's the thing, though. It really does. The parable of the talents is a good illustration of this because it's not that you're doing nothing whenever you choose the safe path. You're still exhibiting the same mindset of that servant who was called a wicked servant because they were paralyzed with fear. They were they were engaged in what I call in jujitsu paralysis by analysis. In jujitsu, <laughs> you have to keep moving forward. You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep moving forward. If you don't and you stop, you're going to get armbarred or you're going to get choked. It's not going to end well for you. You have to keep moving forward. But a lot of jujitsu practitioners they'll get stuck or they'll get caught in a submission because they're so involved in analyzing everything that they they don't really know what to do. They're paralyzed in their fear of making the wrong move or going to the wrong place. They overanalyze it and they end up getting caught anyway. Well, in the parable of the talents, what you have is, is you have three servants. One of them's given five, one of them's given two, one of them's given one. And I may have those numbers wrong. I don't have Matthew 25 right in front of me. But the one who has five, he takes that money and invests it. He takes that money, puts it to work, and that five, he turns into ten. The servant that had two or who had three turns it into five. The servant who had one was afraid of risk. And the idea in that parable, it's not that the other people did something and the one did nothing. He was paralyzed in his fear and he refused to move forward in faith that what he would do would work out. Now, that doesn't mean it always works out, especially whenever we talk about money. You know, you might invest in in a particular stock or a bond or whatever else, and that stock or bond loses value. But the money you have will not gain value if you don't put it to work for you. And the greater point that Jesus is making is, is that there are certain things that are entrusted to us and we are to put those things to work in wisdom and we're not to be paralyzed in fear. But so often whenever we say, well, we need to take the safe route, that wicked servant, he did take the safe route. There is no chance that he would lose that sum of money that he was entrusted with. There's yeah, no even chance says, that would happen. Yeah, in verse 25, he even says, uh, when the master comes back, he goes, I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And, and so what motivated him to, to not take, 
as you call it, a risk or to invest that money or to spend it wisely. What what made him want to do absolutely nothing with that talent but hide it in the ground? Well, he was afraid because he said, at least when you came back, I could go back and say, I still have your talent. <laughs> I still have one. So at least I knew I wasn't going to lose it. If I, if I hit it, I knew at least I wasn't going to lose it. And so um, that, that right there, that fear is what we see motivating the, what I call better safe than sorry mentality. It's, it's, it's fear. It's very much a fear driven mentality. And by the way, no matter what position you take, you can all, you'll always run into that problem because that's what I realized is that no matter how, how much I would do or refrain from doing out of the just in case method, I was still constantly what ifing in myself. So I would say, well, what if this, or what if that, or what if this, or what if that, because, you know, then you start saying, well, okay, well, I'm doing this, but what if I need to be doing this? Or, well, what if I'm not giving enough to God? Maybe I need to give five extra dollars or, well, maybe I need to give 10 extra dollars, or maybe I'm not coming to church enough. Maybe I'm not studying my Bible enough. Maybe I need to be studying it 45 minutes a day instead of 30 minutes a day. Maybe I need to be praying more. What if I'm not what if I'm what if I'm watching movies that I shouldn't be watching? What if I'm driving faster than I should be driving and, and God's grace doesn't cover that? What if what if I've not studied enough? Or what if I've studied but I've come to the wrong conclusion? Or well, what if what if acting is wrong? What if not acting is wrong on this particular issue? What if this isn't, you know, the right thing? You can literally, and I've met people who have driven themselves almost to insanity, and I can almost put myself in that category when you're trying to wrestle with these things because you're so afraid of getting something wrong that you, you think, well, I'll just make sure I go the safe route, but you realize there's no such thing as a safe route because no matter where you're, where you're at, you can still, what if you can still be, what ifing yourself, for example, you can say, well, okay, well, what, what if multiple containers are wrong for the Lord's Supper since you were raised in the one church? Okay, well, I could come back and say, well, what if they're not? And what if you're causing unnecessary division by telling other people they have to do it? And now you're in the wrong because you're causing unnecessary division by saying that everyone needs to do it. So exactly, you, you, yes. can, you, can, you can do that with anything. So even if you believe you're taking the safer out, you know, you could say, well, hey, maybe maybe pants aren't wrong for women to wear. Um, you think they are, but what if they're not? And you're telling all these people they have to do it. Now, what if you are going to be held accountable for binding something that God never bound? What if, what if, what if? So no matter what side of the equation you're on, there's always going to be those what ifs. And that's the first point to overcoming this whole ideology of I want to take the safe route because there's no such thing as a safe route in the sense of how most people present it. Now, I do think there is a safe route in a sense. I think that safe route is James 2, where the Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. I think the, for lack of better words, safe route is always taking a more merciful and graceful approach than a, a, a judgmental approach. I do think that that it, at least lean on that side. I wouldn't necessarily even call it a safe route, but we need to lean on the side of mercy and grace than judgment. But that is the first thing to really unpacking this is realizing that you can always and you will always have questions. There's not going to be a position that you take where everything is settled in your mind. It may be settled in your mind, but not in reality, because you can always ask questions. So what really caused me to start changing? Well, first of all, before I talk about that, Lee, if you don't mind, I want to back up and explain why I believed that all Christians were to have what I call fear and faith. And then I'm going to kind of break that down and explain why I don't believe that, at least not in the way we define fear today. So the, yeah, the, main, after it, dude. So, so the main passages that I used to use, because I, I concluded that um, we are we are to fear as Christians, okay? I believe that. I believe that the Bible teaches that we should have fear. I mean, there, there are tons of Bible passages that talk about fear, and I'm just going to read it or at least allude to some of these that I have in my mind. Deuteronomy 10, 12, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Psalm 25, 12 through 14, Isaiah 8, 12 through 13, um, Luke 12, 4 through 5, Matthew 10, 28, uh, Psalm 89, 7. I mean, there are so many passages throughout both the Old and New Testament that talk about the fear of God. So there's no denying that. I mean, those passages are there. So I had convinced myself that the constant fear that I had lived in and was living in was just a part of Christianity, that that was just a part of it. It just kind of came along with the territory. But the problem is, is that when you look at those passages, first of all, there's, and let me, let me read a couple more 
probably prominent passages in the New Testament. Philippians 2.12, a lot of people know this one, where Paul says that work out, you're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So they put that word of fear and trembling is what the text says. And so a lot of people put emphasis on that trembling. Then you have Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 that says, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Those are probably two of the more popular ones in the yeah. New Testament. I mean, there's a lot, so don't don't think that I'm I'm trying to purposefully ignore any because there's just there is a whole lot, and I will I'm admitting that. Here's the problem with that: you go to the other Bible passages, <laughs> and you say, okay, well, the Bible says that I'm to work out my salvation with what? With fear and trembling. But then I come to passages like First John four, for example. And let me just read this one because I think that this is important for people to hear. 1 John 4.18 says, and actually I'll go ahead and back it up to 1 John 4.17. It says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we can have confidence in, on the judgment day. In this world, we need to be like Jesus. Hmm, interesting, kind of goes back with what we said in our first episode. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So there is no fear in love. No fear, period. No fear. So the Bible says if I love God, there's no fear in that. I shouldn't fear God. I, there's Fear and love are, are juxt- they're, they're, they, you cannot have both of them according to 1 John 4, 18. There's no, because there's no fear in love. No fear. Doesn't say a little bit, no fear. And then it even says this. It explains why. It says, well, fear has to do with punishment. And how many people, going back to my earlier illustration, are following Jesus because they just don't want to be punished? They're terrified. Yeah. Just in yeah. case, just in case. Well, the Bible says if you love God, that's driven out. And the, the Greek word here that's translated drives out or expels literally means cast far away it's not even near it's not even, it's it's nowhere close this isn't just something you don't do it's something you take and, and it's you just chunk it as far as you can it's nowhere near you it drives it out it expels out all fear it says because why the one who fears is not made perfect in love so a perfect love cast out fear okay well wait a minute paul though said we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling Fear and trembling, Kevin. Emphasis on the trembling part is what I used to always make sure my audience understood. But 1 John 4.18 says, there's no fear in love. Well, if I'm to love God, I'm not to have fear of God. If, if I then am to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, how can I work out my salvation in love if there's no fear in love? Well, that's an interesting question, so I'll unpack that here in just a moment, but let's make it a little more complicated before we even do that. <laughs> Another passage is found in, when Paul is writing to Timothy, and I'm going to go ahead and read this one too if you are fine with that. Get it, man. Go Let for it. pull it up here um, because this is, this is one of my favorite passages, and it is um, when Paul is writing to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 1, and he is he's emphasizing just how Paul is to be. I mean, we're, we're talking about in his day and age, in his time, in his culture, and I believe this applies to us today because of all the other passages, but it says this. It says, don't be afraid because God has not given us a, a spirit, spirit of fear, of fear but yeah. of power and of love. What do we see? Love is being contrasted with fear. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. So once again, Paul himself now, it's not just Paul versus John. Now it's Paul versus Paul. It's Paul versus Paul and John, because you have John saying love and fear cannot exist. Paul says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power of spirit of love. So love and fear are not the same thing. So fear does not come from God. God hasn't given us that spirit. But how many people make decisions based upon fear? Well, Kevin, what about Philippians 2.11? We still got to do something with that, right? We can't just ignore it. That's what we talked about in the last episode. We can't just ignore something if we don't like it. So how, what are we to make of all this? Can we pick and choose? Perhaps some Christians are going to say, well, I'm going to choose the fear and trembling route. And you can choose the no fear route. 
Uh, that's what some Christians have done. But I think there is a much better answer and a better response to that. And that is by looking at the word fear and how it's used in Scripture, but also looking at how it's used in context. So the word fear and trembling or the phrase fear and trembling in Scripture is actually used in other places as well. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is telling the Corinthians in Corinth about the joy of Titus and how much joy he brings and how much he loves Titus and how he's been encouraged because of the Christians there. And Paul was talking about the great affection between the Christians in Corinth and Titus and how they have this close relationship. This is the context where Paul says this about Titus. This is what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 7.15. And his affection for you, talking about Titus, is all the greater when he remembers that you were obedient and faithful, receiving him with fear and trembling. Now, he had just talked about how they had this loving, great relationship with him, and then he talked about receiving him with fear and trembling. Now, my question is, does this mean that all of the Titus's friends at Corinth were like shaking, like, oh, I'm scared to death. Titus is going to come visit us again. I'm so afraid. Is that what Paul's talking about? Were they literally trembling and shaking in their boots when their friend Titus was going to come visit them? No. When Titus came, they weren't scared in terror and horror. Within context, this phrase means that they had a great respect and reverence for Titus. I remember there was a time I met someone who I had really respected, and I had just a lot of admiration for him, and I had never met him before, and I finally got the opportunity. And I was so excited about it because of who I knew I was about to meet. I literally was shaking, and that hardly ever happened to me, but I was like, man, I'm like literally like the kind of respect how I view him, I am literally shaking. I believe that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't think he's saying you're just scared to death of Titus because he just said that they were good friends. He just said that he's coming back to see y'all and you you guys received him in fear and trembling. I believe that that is another way of saying tremendous respect and it doesn't translate well to us today in modern times when we're reading the word fear because we think of terror and horror. So here's another passage, too, I want to read real quick, and then then we can kind of talk about this a little bit more. But Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, it is within this context here, Paul is writing to the uh, Christians in Ephesus, and he's talking about the slave owners, which uh, that, that can be another topic for another time, because I think that's an interesting one, too, which, by the way, I'm going to talk about that in my book, too. Um, but Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, it says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up, threatening them, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So the fear and trembling here is not associated with threats or punishment because he just told the slave owners, don't threaten, don't do not do that, don't act like other slave owners, love them, treat them in the right way. But he's telling the slaves themselves, the bond servants, serve with fear and trembling. So the slave owners were not to threaten their slaves, but treat them with respect and without favoritism. So it's within this framework that the slaves were told to obey with fear and trembling. So once again, this fear isn't a trembling of horror. It's a trembling of respect, not threats. So my conclusion is God doesn't expect, nor does he desire Christians to have a fear and trembling of horror and terror, but I believe he is expecting Christians to have a respect and an awe of fear and trembling in that definition of where we revere God. And that's even sometimes the way it's translated. I had read uh, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, that's how it's usually translated, except uh, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. It's this idea of we're just in awe of God. And so I that that is really my conclusion on the matter, that the fear we're to have is not the typical standard fear that we think of when we think of fear uh, of today in America, where we're like, oh, we're just terrified, or we're just horror. It's, oh, I'm scared. No, it's the idea of awe, of reverence, and respect. And for people who want to emphasize the trembling, you would have to explain why in the world all of the Christians at Corinth who are friends of Titus would be 
shaking in their boots of Titus. That doesn't even make any sense. So it it explains itself by this is something where they show great respect and awe and reverence. And by the way, just another side point is this. Do you know, Lee, what the number one command in all of Scripture is? And when I say the number one command, the most repeated command, maybe let me put it that way. The most repeated command in all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Can you guess what it is? The most stated command throughout both Old and New is do not fear. Constantly we have Jesus paralleling fear with love and fear with faith. Like when, uh, for example, we see oftentimes in uh, John's gospel, I mean, really you see this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four, where Jesus will say, do not be afraid but have faith. And you see not just love uh, being the opposite of fear, but faith being the opposite of fear. So in other words, don't fear, have faith. Going back to Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. I believe the exact same thing is is understood there. I think that fear is not a fear of terror or horror. I think I believe it's a fear of respect and awe. Now, I do think there are times when the Bible does speak or at least allude to. Now, how we interpret it is a different way for us today, I believe, um, and that's another subject. But I do think there are times when the Bible does speak of literal horror in a sense that we would understand fear to mean for us today, but I don't think he ever is speaking to that towards those who are believers in Jesus or those who are in relationship with God. It's always those who are on the outside that horror will come upon them and things like that. Um, And so what has often happened is people have taken those passages and they said, okay, well, I'm going to use these passages that talk about non-believers and non-Christians, and I'm going to start preaching them to Christians so that I can scare them into doing what, you know, believing the doctrines I want them to believe or doing what I want them to do and those types of things, and not always with ill will. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are sincere by, by using those passages. I just think they're sincerely wrong. And ultimately, people have used that fear sometimes unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally to be able to control and manipulate because you can get a lot of people to do something if someone comes to you and I'm scared to death and you can just really say, well, look, that's probably means you're not doing something right. And if you just give a little more money each week, maybe that tithe, you need to expand that a little bit more and make sure you're adding a, you know, make sure you're adding enough to the plate and giving enough to God, or maybe you need to be doing this or not doing this or following me or not following me in this or whatever. It, you're able to kind of control people. And I don't think that everyone has sinister motives. In fact, I dare say probably most people don't, but there has been a lot of documented instances where people have used that uh, fear to scare people into doing what they want them to do. But ultimately, I believe that the only fear that Christians are to have, those who trust in Christ, is not a fear of horror and terror, but a fear of honor and respect, and that the fear that we do see that is associated sometimes with that horror and terror is always with those who've rejected God. But even those, I think, have their own context we have to consider. Well, and that word, though, the context, that to me, this entire discussion, this illustrates the importance of context and recognizing context and respecting context. And it also is highly illustrative of that strategy that so many people use whenever they approach scripture and just reading it and taking it for what it says. I need to stand here in stark terror of God, even though that primary commandment, the the most cited one is do not fear. Well, you're saying I need to sit here and not fear, but this says I need to fear. So what do we do with that? This is just an, an example of how important context is and to know what the contextual um, milieu of the terms being discussed are. We need to be able to define those terms within their context. And whenever we understand the contextual backbone behind those things that we're saying, then the conflict that sometimes arises between those passages or those ideas, it it goes away. It's not really a conflict at all because we misunderstood what it was that was being stated. We misunderstood it and therefore we misapplied it. And then that fear promulgates itself perpetuates itself. And then ultimately we have a multitude of people that live their lives in fear because they have been told that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And whenever that's the case and people operate based on fear, well, then that's going to be the primary MO that they use to spread that message to others. It's It's not a message of liberation. It's not a message of 
of freedom. It's not a message of peace. It's not a message that, that lends itself to freedom from the bonds of fear. It's a message that promulgates fear and fear continues to perpetuate itself throughout different fellowships and throughout different mindsets and throughout different assemblies, throughout different communities. And then before you know it, that fear lends itself to these desires to regulate worship so that we don't misstep. That fear then promulgates itself in such a way that we begin to have these discussions within these divisions that we talked about before of demanding that others follow after our particular interpretation. Otherwise, you do so to your peril. And then that lends itself to this discussion of taking the safe path and being better safe than sorry. And all of that stems from operating from a place of fear rather than a place of faith. Yeah, and you see that constantly paralleled with Jesus of you know, fear, fear and faith, fear and faith, fear versus faith, fear versus faith, fear versus faith. And to give maybe a a good example to help people understand the word itself, like for example, um, then uh, you brought up Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his command, a very popular verse that a lot of people quote, oh, this is, this is what it boils down to. Just be afraid of God and do what he says. And that is how a lot of people view it. That God, God is gonna. I'm, I'm terrified of God, and so I have to do what He says. And I don't even think that's the proper understanding or interpretation there, of 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 what His whole point is. Um, more than likely, people think that's Solomon. But when you look at the word, for example, judge, Jesus says, "Do not judge" in John seven one, and then in John seven twenty four, Jesus said, "Judge righteous judgment." Well. Even though we're we're like, okay, do we judge or do, are we not to judge? Well, the point is, is that there's some judging that's good and there's some judging that's bad. It's the same thing with fear. There are there's some fear that Christians are to have, and there's some fear that Christians aren't to have. So the word fear itself can be a little tricky because we already we talked about presuppositions and how we typically come to certain words or certain sentences or phrases or concepts with with our presuppositions in mind. And the same thing is with fear. When people think of fear, like we don't use that word today to mean what it meant back then. We we don't use the word fear to to you typically are like, man, like to, I am so afraid of him, man. Like I am, man, I'm so fearful. We don't use that word in a positive sense. We always typically use that word in a negative sense today. Back in that time, both Old and New Testament, it wasn't always a negative con. It could be a negative connotation, but the, the word itself, for example, I just pulled this up to show. So the word can mean that it can mean. Look, listen to the definitions. It can mean to stand in awe. Well, that's different, right? Standing in awe is a whole lot different than trembling in my boots. Um, it can mean showing reverence. It can mean to revere. It can mean to have respect for. It can mean terror. It can mean awesome. It can mean awesome things. It can mean frightened. And it can mean terrible things. Now, I'm reading this from the dictionary here, okay? I'm, I'm right now on BibleHub.com looking at this word, giving all of the ways in which it can be uh, translated or interpreted. So, awesome things versus terrible things. Would you say that's the same thing? Like, if I'm like, Lee, man, guess what? I did a lot of terrible things this weekend. You're not probably going to think I just did a lot of awesome things. You're going to think <laughs> I did a lot of terrible things. So that's why when we read these verses and we see the Bible says, fear God, it, it, it could literally mean something like stand in awe of God, revere God, um, think of God as awesome. That, that's, that's really what is happening here. And let me read one more thing, because I know I've been talking a lot here, but I do want to read this one passage, because this is something I'm very passionate about, because I, had, I personally had great fear. And I started to know who God was when I started acting on faith instead of fear. And I want to read this in Hebrews 12, because it parallels, as Christians, how we're to view God versus how so many of the Jews were terrified of God under the Old Testament. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. It says, For you, talking to the Christians, have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But they could not endure even the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it would be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying, that's terrifying, was the sight that Moses said, I tremble. 
But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Now, did you notice that? All of a sudden there's a transition. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in uh, in gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are in, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of the blood of Abel. So here, the writer of Hebrews is paralleling the idea of they were terrified. When God spoke in the Old Testament, they were terrified. There was thunder and there was lightning. And even if an animal were to accidentally touch it, they would die. It was horrifying. That's not the mountain we're on. We're on Mount Zion now. We, we have a relationship with God. Parallel the fact that they couldn't even touch the mountain God spoke from with what John said in 1 John, that now we can actually, we have physically touched God ourselves. Look at the difference between that. And the point that's being made is we no longer have that fear because we know who God is. We don't have all those ancient Near Eastern presuppositions about God. or We know He's shown himself, and we don't have that fear anymore. We, we, we have casted that out far from us, and God didn't even give it to us to begin with. That didn't come from God. And so when you take all of those things in, con- in, in context, to me, it just seems abundantly clear that if we're going to cast out fear, if we're going to accept the fact that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, and if we are going to have joy and peace in our lives, which constantly doubting and questioning if whether or not you're saved or not, it's not going to bring you peace and joy. I can tell you that right now. It's no. just not going to happen. But when you have all of that as the greater narrative arc, and then you come to the passages about fear and trembling and how we are to fear God and keep his commandments, I believe we have to interpret those and give the definition there that means honor, reverence, awe, awesome, those types of things. Absolutely. And whenever you begin to look at it through that light and you begin to appreciate the relational approach that exists within Scripture and you begin to appreciate Jesus for who he is and who he's revealed to be, and you're able to take those blinders off and eliminate those presuppositions as much as you possibly can whenever you examine Scripture, then everything begins to come alive in a very real way. It begins to come alive in a completely different way than existed before. And all of a sudden, the prospect of being wrong isn't terrifying because that idea of a fear-based approach that leads to that regulative principle, that better safe than sorry mentality, all of that emanates from a place of fear. And whenever you begin to let go of that, it's really empowering. Everything opens up. The entire narrative changes because you're no longer worried about doing the right thing or the wrong thing or being right. Because at that point, it's all about your effort. At that point, it's all about everything that you can possibly do and what I am doing. And the emphasis is then on you and your actions. And it's off of what really matters in all of this and Whenever we begin to change that perspective and change that approach, good things really begin to happen in our lives. Our entire paradigm shifts and we're no longer concerned with ultimately being right. Well, I have to be right. And if I'm not right, well, then what is it? Because here's the thing, dude. There are so many things that we are right about, and there's a lot of things we're wrong about, bro. I mean, and and we've talked about this before. You know, you all you say this, I reserve the right to be wrong. I reserve the right to be wrong. There are a lot of positions that I have changed on, and a lot of this is is sort of an artifact of that old black and white thinking. I still fall back into some of those old thought patterns where I'm thinking, well, is this the right interpretation? Is this the right way to read it? And I've moved away from that in in a lot of ways, I've moved away from that mentality. And now it's more about, well, maybe this is a better reading than that is. Maybe this is a more contextual reading than that is. It's not about whether it's right or wrong. It's about whether it's a more accurate reading. Yeah. And, yeah. Trying to actually figure out what was being said then and how to apply that to where I'm at right now in today's world, but also in my specific situation. And Lee, this is something, man, that I really just, it was another one of those epiphanies that just hit me. 
And it was the fact that when I believe I need to take what, what we have discussed as this safe road, better safe than sorry, that is actually not only a lack of faith, but it is a lack of trust that God's grace is big enough to handle us. Yes. Because what Absolutely. we're saying is just in case God's not enough, just in case the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't enough, just in case God's love is not enough, I that's really that's really what 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 we're saying. And the I, I had this conversation some uh, probably a little while back with a woman and we were just talking about fear and she was asking me, you know, how do you make decisions and things like that? And I said, well, I said, ultimately, I, I know that I don't know everything and I don't and I don't know what I don't know. And so I'm smart enough to know I'm not very smart. And when you take all that <laughs> into consideration, then, you know, OK, well, that means there's probably a lot of stuff I'm, I, I've gotten wrong. And a lot of times it's even purposeful. You know, I mean, a lot of times I do stuff when I know I shouldn't, much less all the times that I'm ignorantly doing something. But I look at it this way. When I'm making a decision going forward and I'm really trying to make a, a Christocentric decision, I first think, okay, well, let me study the issue. Let me study the subject. I want to try to understand the culture at the time. I want to try to understand the literature, what was happening, the context, all of those things. Then I want to try to take into consideration of not just the context and what it says, but also if my conclusion would be consistent with uh, would it be a practical and consistent conclusion with what I know and how I've seen people handle things for the past 2000 years since these letters were written? And if I've come to a conclusion that probably nobody else has ever come to, I probably need to start questioning that a little bit and wonder, okay, well, maybe I'm not looking at this correctly or maybe there's something that, that I'm missing. But finally, even then, I may not be right. And I, I understand that. So even after I've gone through kind of my whole progression of trying to get everything right, I'm I'm left with this. Am I operating off of fear because I'm afraid what if, or am I operating out of faith saying even if? So is it what if or is it even if? So yeah. I think I think that even if is as long as you're not saying, well, I I think you know I'm going to sin and I'm going to do whatever I want to, and God's grace is just going to handle. Me. Okay, I've got a big problem with that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are people who are scared to death and think, well, I don't know what the best thing to do. My question is, well, are you are you basing it on what if because you're not sure and there's just that one percent in your mind and that's what's terrifying you at night or is it even if and you think you're doing the right thing but even if you're not you know god's grace has you so that's a good just a little mental tool to to put in your arsenal that next time you're having a decision and you think you're doing the right thing but you have that thought and think but what if just what if you, if you're saying "what if," you have already categorized your decision as being one that's from faith, and we know that's not from God. So, if you're saying or from well, fear is what you meant, yeah, what, what, yes, from from fear, yeah. not from faith, yeah. And so that's why when you when you look at faith, and just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're like, we believe God's going to do this, but even if, even if, so instead of "what if," if we can change our our when those thoughts cross our minds. Let's change them from what ifs to even ifs. And if we do it, even if we're on the side of faith at that point. Absolutely. And it's not a faith that's placed in ourselves. It's not a faith that's placed in our own interpretation. It's not a faith that's placed in all of these other things and in our traditions and in our families and what grandpappy said and what the preacher said and what the elders say and what we've always believed. And this is what we've always done. It's not a faith that's placed in that. It's not a faith that's placed in your own self. It's a faith that's placed in a good, well, um, well-intentioned study of Scripture. And in that, we're going to get a lot of things right, and there are going to be a lot of things we get wrong. Because like you said in the last episode, it's a 2,000-year-old book that was written by a bunch of people in a completely different social and cultural context than we exist in. And whenever that's the case, there's going to be some things that aren't going to translate well. There are going to be some nuances and some points that we're going to get wrong. But even if we do, God's grace is sufficient. Even if we get the wrong viewpoint of how communion is to be observed or you know, what the appropriate manner of music and worship is, is supposed to be, you know, whatever that case is, even if that's the case, is God a big enough God that if we are pursuing him with our whole heart, that he will accept us and he will allow us to come into his presence. 
what if, if that changes to even if, that really is a good tool that we can use. And man, this has been a great discussion. You really took the ball and ran with it. And dude, there were so many points that I was wanting to make and I was going to jump in with, and you just covered it, man. You did so good in, in rocking through all that. So man, I appreciate your insights. Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, the, the main thing I would just want to tell people who are listening is if you are making a decision off of fear or if someone is trying to get you to make a decision off of fear, that's not biblical. And and I would either run from that situation or explain to that person that they're using a mechanism that God never used and that that's not the way to, to do things, especially if, if someone is, you know, if they're like, well, I think I'm doing the right thing. And someone says, well, yeah, but what if, what if you don't need to do this? And I've met Christians who are just terrified. They've emailed me and they started reading my book or they've started reading other, other people's material and that's grace-centered and they're starting to really question the legalistic system or the church they're a part of. And you know, they may be younger, they may be in college or something like that. And uh, they're like, well, you know, my mom and dad, they're scaring me to death saying, you know, that Satan's got a hold of me and that uh, this feeling that I have of peace is not from God, but it's from Satan to try to get me to to fall into this quote unquote liberalism. And they're telling me I'm going to go to hell and they're just trying, you know, that that's not the way God operates. And that's, that's, I mean, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. And so when we have that, it's not from God. And when we are trying to make decisions based upon whether or not something is right or wrong, and we are we are siding, like I said, on fear instead of faith, that's not what we see in Scripture. Now, people will all the time quote Matthew 10, 28, and what about all these passages about fearing Jesus and how Jesus utilized these passages? Do you realize he used those on religious people to get them to quit oppressing people? The very thing that oftentimes yeah. people use fear for today is what Jesus used fear for to those believe, to try to get them to quit oppressing people. You know, that was his whole point is that you're rejecting me. You don't have a relationship with me. And so there's going to be upcoming judgment for, for you. Why? Not because they were constantly wondering if they were doing the right thing. It was because they were oppressing people. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that that's what's crazy about it is today the oppressors are the ones that tend to use fear when the only time that really God did use fear was to try to warn the oppressors that they needed to quit oppressing people. Well, and that whole thing just brings to mind this idea, and this this was just an epiphany that I just had, is whenever you operate out of fear, you're operating out of coercion. If God's intention is to terrify you to the point where you have a desire to obey him, well, that desire to obey him isn't your desire. You're not desiring to obey him because you love God and you want to draw near into him and you recognize that he is the supreme author of everything, that he has created everything and brought everything into existence that exists, that he is in mad love with you and has a desire to know you and for you to know him and for you to draw near into him. No, that's not why you're following him. It's because in your perspective, God is a mad tyrant that will smite you and will smite you heavily if you deviate from his will any iota whatsoever. And you're not following him from a place of love. You're coerced into it because you're terrified of what will happen if you don't. Yeah, and what do and, we call relationships where someone is remaining in it because of constant fear? It's abuse, bro. Yeah, it's, it's an abuse. abusive relationship. It is. And, and that's the question. What kind of relationship do we have with God? God never intended for us to draw near unto him from a place of fear. It's always been from a place of faith. And in that faith, there's a reverential respect for God and who he is and a recognition in awe of who he is. It's not a terror. It's not a, a terror that we feel because when we love God, that terror is removed. Now, I think that there are some people that draw near unto God initially because they are terrified. I know that's that's kind of my story whenever I left faith behind for a while and then I came back in and met Kim and we started studying and I started studying with with my in-laws and everything else, whenever I was baptized at that point, it was ultimately from a place of fear. I was too afraid to drive the 11 miles to the church building to fill up the baptistry because I was afraid I would die in a car accident. And if I died, and I had no understanding of grace whatsoever at this point, if I died in that car accident on the way to the building, 
well, there's a chance I'm not going to make it to heaven. So I need to take the safe route and find a body of water close by. So they had a stagnant pool in the backyard that had like green and orange algae floating in it and everything else. And I was baptizing that water because I was too afraid to drive to the church or go anywhere else where there was clean water because I didn't want to take the chance I would die. I took the safe route. But even in that I don't think that my salvation in and of itself was, was uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was non-existent. I don't think so. I, I think that the desire to follow God was genuine, but it came from a abnormal place. It came from an unscriptural place. It came from a place of fear rather than a place of reverential awe and love. Now, it has eventually evolved into that. And it was only in embracing grace and recognizing grace and the wonderful grace that God gives to people and that he extends to everybody that that what if changed to an even if. So that's that's something that I think is is important as well. I, I think that's a story that maybe some people can relate to. But yeah, if yeah. you're out there and oh, go ahead, bro. Well, no, I was just going to say that's a good point because a lot of times people actually and and I've written I, I've written I, I have written extensively about this. I haven't published a whole lot of stuff yet because um, I actually wrote it a while back. So I'm, this may this may be something because I've actually been I, while we were talking, I've actually pulled up that word doc. So that's why I've just been just kind of been like knocking this stuff out going down here. But I've I, I have really come to the conclusion because this is where I have personally changed is that people love to quote. Um, uh, let's see, what is it? Proverbs, uh, Proverbs nine ten, where the, you know, the fear of God is the beginning to wisdom or understanding and those types of things. And I really, even then I have, I have really shifted my position because that word, when you look at that word, it's this, it's, it means it can mean the same thing. It can mean awesome. It can mean reverence. Um, it can mean, uh, awe, those types of things, but it can also mean terror too. And so people are going to translate that differently because it can mean any, or they're going to interpret that differently. But I think even there, I don't even think the the fear of God in the sense of we think of fear is even the beginning to um, to understand, you know, to understand God. I, in fact, I think fear takes us away from understanding God. And for me, I mean, for many years, fear was kind of the driving me away from God because it was teaching me a completely different gospel. So I, I still think it's that reverence, that it's that, that fear of, of I'm in awe. Like it, it before I learn from somebody, I have to respect somebody. And I think yes. that's what the proverb is getting at is that if you're going to learn from God, if you're ever going to really be a follower of him, you first have to respect him. And you can't learn from anybody you don't respect. You don't you if you don't have reverence for somebody, you're never going to allow them to educate you and you're never going to allow yourself to learn from them. And so um some of those passages which I mean this can get into like a completely different conversation, but even when some of the people bring up those passages about God using judge upcoming judgment, even then I don't even know how much it is for God to purposefully be trying to scare them as like into doing the right thing as it is him just telling them that this is, this is what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it's the same way. Like if, if you're telling your child, don't put your hand on the stove when it's on because it's going to burn and it's going to hurt you're not doing that to like just completely scare them. You're trying to explain to them the consequence. And so the, there's a paper, a research paper from a, a Hebrew scholar, and I cannot think of his name at that time. If I do, I'll, I'll bring it up later. But um, man, it, he, he goes through every single passage. I mean, it's, it's super in-depth. And it's just, I call it a research paper. It technically is, but it's more like a research book. But I mean, it is just phenomenal. And that's his conclusion is that, if, if truly we believe that fear is the opposite of faith in the way that we understand fear, I'm just going to start using the word horror or terror because that'll that's the way that we understand, most people understand the word fear. If we're going to say that terror is the opposite of faith, then love and love and terror cannot coexist. And same thing with a regular relationship is you cannot have a healthy relationship with your spouse, with your parents, with your friends, if you are coerced into that relationship and the only thing that's keeping you there is fear of well, what happens if I leave that, yeah. that is an abusive relationship as you pointed out earlier. And I unfortunately think a lot of people have an abusive relationship with their God. I think that they, 
view it that way. I don't think God is an abusive God, but I think a lot of people view God in that abusive relational way. And that's, it breaks my heart because I know what that feels like. Cause that's what I had. And, and if, if this can help somebody out there have a healthy relationship with God, man, I, I just hope and pray that that can be the case. Well, and that's why we're doing this podcast is because you and I operated from that same paradigm. You and I have both experienced that. We have both experienced that that terror, and it's not a good place to be. And we want to do what we can to help free our brothers and sisters in Christ from that type of thinking, because that type of thinking can do you in. That type of thinking can either erode your faith to the point where you just leave faith behind entirely or it can erode your faith to the point where you become an automaton going through the motions just because you're afraid of the consequences if you fail to do so. You're afraid of the consequences if you fail to assemble with the saints on the first day of every week. You're afraid of the consequences if you dare bring a pipe organ, piano, or guitar into your worship. You're afraid of the consequences if you dare use more than one container in the observance of the Lord's Supper. You're terrified of the consequences if you allow a woman to get up and speak from the pulpit or or to teach a man in any capacity whatsoever. And whenever you operate from a place of fear, then you're really not growing at that point. You really don't develop your spiritual formation. You don't change. You don't engage with the text in a healthy way. You don't engage with your brothers and sisters in a healthy way. You're left with a superficial faith that's fear-driven rather than faith-driven. But whenever the evolution takes place and you begin to accept and you begin to recognize the grace that God has extended to all of us, and that grace covers men through men and women throughout all of time, that have pursued God in spite of the misunderstandings they have had as to who God is and what God's all about, that changes everything. That changes the whole narrative and you really begin to grow and you really begin to experience a really healthy paradigm shift that leads you to a better understanding of love and grace and mercy and what all of those things are. Um, Man, this has been a good discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I do have to hop off of here, though. I've got things I've got to do, so we'll go ahead and wrap up if that's cool with you. Yeah, no, um, that's good, man. I, I hope uh, it's been beneficial for folks. I hope so, too. We appreciate all of you that listen, our constant listeners, our audience, which is growing every month. We appreciate you all tremendously. Um, we love hearing from you guys. Um, drop Kevin a line. Drop me a line. You can message us on Facebook. You can send us an email in the email address that's in the show notes. We love hearing from all of our listeners. If you have any questions, concerns, if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, if you have um, an, an admonishment or if you want to rebuke us, we we welcome that as well. We love everybody. Um, Continue to share this podcast with your friends. Please like us and follow us on Facebook. Go ahead and give us that five-star review, and we look forward to seeing you all again very soon.